Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the joy that we have as the body of Christ, Lord, that we can, can laugh together, we can pick on each other, and we can love one another. I pray that the, the love that we have would be your love. Um, even as we were talking about in Sunday school, there are different kinds of love. There's friendship, and that's great, and that's wonderful. But more than that, Lord, you displayed to us the love of Christ. And that's what you want us to have for one another. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be sacrificial to one another, loving each other the way that you loved us, drawing them closer, and, and Lord, willing to give, give of our lives to draw others to you. Lord, thank you for your word as, as we open it. Lord, I know that this is a, a challenging passage sometimes. Lord, help us not to overcomplicate it. Um, Help us to implement it in our lives, to love you and to serve you as you deserve. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, this last week, I got more feedback on last week's sermon than I think any sermon I've preached, I know since I've got here and maybe ever. Um, And I appreciate it, I really do. Some of it was very positive. Some of it was more of a challenge, and, uh, and I appreciate both. The, those that were a little bit more of a challenge, it, it helps sharpen me and keep me on my toes and make sure that, that what I'm preaching comes straight out of the Bible, and that's very, very important. And there were, there were a couple of items that were, they were like, well, why didn't you emphasize this or explain this? or How, how did this work? And I, I, I just didn't quite... And so if I missed something last week, my, my apologies. I hope that... Um, well, as I said, I encourage you, dig into it. Uh, and remember, I'm, I'm, I mess stuff up too, just like everybody else. So dig in and search the scriptures for yourselves. You'll, you'll know any of, any of us that teach, whether it's Jim for Sunday school or Jack on Wednesday nights or me, we, we will tell you time and time again, dig in. Go to the word yourself. We're going we're gonna to mess up, stuff up. Maybe we don't say it the way that we mean to. Or maybe we... we completely miss something that's right there and should have been obvious, but one way or another, uh, thank you for that feedback. Um, one of the things that I, as I, I look back and watched the sermon myself again, um, that I could have stated more clearly is, is somewhat how these connect. This next section we're going to be talking about of, of how men need to step up and lead in the church, but one of the things that that does require it from the ladies is that you make sure that you give us room to do that. And that's part of what this is, is dealing with about, well, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority, is, is allowing the guys to take that position. And so, particularly in, in the homes, if you're a wife that is nitpicking and, oh, you should have done this and you should have done well, that's not helping us step up. So, so that's one of the things that, that definitely um, we need our wives, we need women to help us out and partly that's making sure that they're not obstructing God's plans. Because God has designed women for certain roles and certain things, and men for certain roles and certain things. And if, if we're preventing the other from doing what they're supposed to, then we're failing. So together, as the body of Christ, we need to work together to be able to do that. Um, God designed men and women to work in harmony, to bring about his plan. And we've been talking about, his plan is, is explained back in chapter 2, verse 4. What is that? What is God's desire? That, that all men, that all people would be saved, would come to know him. And each of us has a role to play in doing that. We, we can do that by displaying the, the beauty of what Christ has designed in the church, but also in our homes, and also just in the community around us. So as we, as we look at this idea of leadership within the church, it is specifically focused on what it is to be a church leader, an overseer. We're going to dig into that. But I think that we do need to recognize that there's, there's more to this. As we, as we dig into this, we're going to see that it sets a target. It sets a standard. It sets a high expectation of what it is to be like Christ. And so... Ladies, there are certain parts of this that obviously don't directly apply to you specifically. I mean, you can't be the, the husband of one wife. That just doesn't work. 
But as we look through these characteristics, how can you implement these and be more like Christ? Guys, as you read through this, you may think to yourself, there is no way I will ever be in church leadership. Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. But whether you're, you're actually going to be in church leadership or not, these are, are guidelines. It's, it's like a target. And, and I know, I'm kind of strange. I like pictures. I like word pictures. I know several of you have, have gone target shooting before, either with guns or with uh, archery, right? So you know what a target is. Okay, if you hit the bullseye, that's the goal. That's the aim. We all want to do that. But at the very least, I want to encourage you, at least cut paper. Get within the target. You, you may miss center mass. I get that. But everyone, I want to encourage you, at least be hitting the target. And then it's a process of growing and developing and drawing closer to Christ that we're going to narrow that in and, and certain ones are going to achieve this standard that God expects for leaders within the church. Now, the section itself, it does have some of the same difficulties that we talked about last week. There are some words that are challenging. We're going to try and dig into those a little bit. But there's also certain concepts that are difficult. And I think those are more difficult because it's hard to put them into practice. Hard to actually do those. But, it's been said, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So, as we look at this target, I want to encourage you, at least get as close to the target as you can. Aim for, for center mass, aim for the bullseye, but at least be working closer and closer to hitting the target, day by day, each day as you follow Christ and live for him. All right. The pastor, well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read all seven verses and then we'll come back and kind of break them down. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Starts off with, it is a trustworthy statement. Uh, you'll recall all the way back in chapter 1, Paul sets up this idea that he's dealing with good theology and bad theology. What is true and what is not. Some false teachers are always going to be around trying to draw people away from what God expects and this, Paul is emphasizing, is one of those things that is true. One of those things that will prevent people from having their faith become shipwrecked. That's, that's what he has warned Timothy about. That's what he's aiming for. And remember, in this context, everything that Paul is trying to teach is for the purpose of helping people get saved, of drawing them to Christ, because that's God's goal. That's God's desire. And so we have to understand these things accurately. This is trustworthy. This is significant. This is important. This is what Paul wants Timothy not only to know in his head, but also to teach and to put into practice to make a part of what's going on at this church that he's leading. So what is the trustworthy statement? If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. So the first First thing that comes up is if he desires it. He wants it. Um, how, what do you guys do, or, or we can think of the, the kids, what do kids do when they want something? They, they say so, and then they reach for it, right? Particularly little kids, they're, they're always reaching out for That's the idea that's conveyed here. Is if you aspire to it, if you're reaching for it, that's a good thing. That's, that's desirable. We want men to step up and, and aim for and reach for these things. Now, obviously not all men are going to reach that, but like I said, just because you don't hit the bullseye doesn't mean that you're not working towards 
getting better and better and better at it. So my, my desire, my encouragement for all of us is that we aspire, we work towards this. But this is specifically saying if a man desires this position, this job, this responsibility of overseer. Well, what is an overseer? I think before we can dig into the qualifications and what that looks like, we have to understand that concept, first of all. Um, the New Testament does use three different terms that kind of point at this same office. And uh, in, in the handouts that I pass out on Wednesday night, last Wednesday, it encouraged you to kind of dig into these a little bit. Those three words, obviously my Greek is not great, so if I mispronounce, I'm sorry, but presbyteros, episkopos, and poimian. Okay, those are the three different ideas. It's elder, bishop, or overseer, and pastor. And those, those words are used throughout. And I'd encourage you, take some time um, to look at in Acts 20. Again, these are on the, the handout. In Acts 20, in Ephesians 4, in 1 Peter 5, all deal with those and help us get a, a fuller understanding of what God expects. This passage only uses one of those. So we're, we're going to dig into the idea of an overseer. Sometimes it's translated as bishop, um, different denominations have taken the term and use it in different ways, so that's why some translations phrase it different ways. But, like I said, I like, I like word pictures. Uh, you guys know I was in the military. Sometimes my mind just thinks that way. Several others have been in the military. You guys know what an overwatch is? Anybody? Okay. So, when, you, when an operation is happening, sometimes, depending on the terrain and the setting and all of that, there's going to be what's called an overwatch. Sometimes we call them snipers. They'll set up in an area and they're watching where the operation is going to take place. And they are providing cover. They're providing some assistance. They're helping out that group. And then they're also eyes and ears. And they're able to pass some communication. Depending, again, depending on the operation, there's all kinds of different things. But there's the frontline troops that go out and do the operation. And then there's this, this two, three, five people that sit back and they're watching over it. And depending on what's happening, sometimes, like I said, there's a sniper in there who's providing some really precise fire to make sure that his guys are taken care of because they don't want somebody sneaking up on them. Sometimes it's also the heavy machine gun is up there that just lays down suppressing fire to make sure that nobody is able to come after his guys. That's, that's the mind that come, or that, that's the picture that comes to my mind. And, and I know my, my pictures aren't always 100% accurate, so please don't read too much into it. But it's that idea of what's going on. The overseer of the church is a smaller group that kind of sits back and looks over to provide some of that protection and some of that help and, and call for fire and be able to do all kinds of different things of that nature to help out that frontline troops. Okay, Some of these other passages that I've mentioned, they talk about that, that God gives pastors to equip the saints so that they can do the work of the ministry. That's, that's the idea that's going on here is that there's that frontline troop that go out and do the operation, and then there's this group of overseers who help them, who protect them, who nurture them, who develop them. That's what we're going to be dealing with throughout all of these. And so what does it take to be that kind of a person? Well, first of all, if a man desires, there has to be a desire. There has to be a yearning for it. Um, just because they want it doesn't mean that they should get it, but... There, if, if a man doesn't want this position, then he probably shouldn't be in it. Because if, if he doesn't desire or want to help the church, to protect the church, to guide the church and lead it, then he's not going to do a great job at it. So, for this role, there needs to be a desire to do this. And then you'll notice that Paul says this is a good work. It is a fine work that he desires to do. Um, this actually is a synonym for the good works that the wives or the, that the women before are supposed to have. Um, the women were supposed to have good works of things like faith and love and holiness. That's the end of chapter 2. Um, they were supposed to have self-restraint. Um, we also know that they're supposed to be keepers at home. They're supposed to nurture. They're supposed to learn. These are all good works that, that women are to do. Well, here, one of the good works that guys are supposed to do is desire this function of being an overseer 
in the body of Christ, of helping others, of protecting others, of drawing others to Christ. Now, this aspire, the, the aspire and desire are two different words, but they both do encourage that longing for, that reaching for. The second one, this, the, at the end, it is a fine work that he desires to do, is also, it's, it's really the same word as lusting in a positive way. We think of lust as a negative, and it is. But this is that same goal or desire, reaching for, longing for, that it becomes something of, of who he is, an internal part of him that wants to be a leader, wants to be an overseer of the church. In Ephesians chapter 2, now I'm, I'm going to be throwing out a bunch of different verses. Um, when I was a camp director, we would play a game called sword drills. You guys know what a sword drill is? Where, where you flip through really fast. Now, as a camp director, I could throw candy at kids and, and encourage them. I'm not going to be giving out prizes or anything, though I do have some Tootsie Rolls in my office. If, if, if you feel gypped, if you are able to find these verses, I, I'd encourage you, uh, I'll, I'll give you some Tootsie Rolls. But in Ephesians, we're, we're going we're gonna to flip through some pages. Um, Ephesians chapter 2. We are going to try and go to them quickly and then keep going, but some of these, I think, are, are pretty important. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, we have this idea of good works. Starting off in verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not, of, not a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God expects us to do good works. He wants us to live a life of those. He saved us for the purpose of doing good works. And this desiring to be a leader as men is one of those ways in which we can be doing good works. That's a good thing. Another uh, that came to my mind was Matthew chapter 5. I love hearing the sound of pages turn. I know I, I do a lot of, of on my phone with the, the technology. I don't, I don't hold that against you by any means. If that's the, the copy of God's word that you use, as long as you're studying it, I'm happy. But it does sound pretty cool. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Let your light shine before men that, in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I really wanted to focus in on this one because why do we do good works? It's not for ourselves. It's not to, to bring the attention to us. We talked last week about you know, some of those things, restrictions on the way that women present their appearance is not to draw attention to themselves. Well, guys, we shouldn't be drawing attention to ourselves by our good works. If you want to be a leader in church just so that people focus on you, that's not a good idea. Why does this say that we do good works? What's that, Dennis? Yeah. So that we do, but also so that others do, right? So let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Both of us, us and them, need to be glorifying God. That's God's desire, is that people come to know him. And so one of the ways that we can help that happen is through good works. All right. A little bit of a rabbit trail on that one, but that's okay. If, if a man desires or aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work or a good work that he desires to do. So what then does it take? Well, an overseer then must be. Now this is a, a very important phrase. It's used twice in this passage. So I would contest that there are two major things that a overseer must be, has to. No doubts, no arguing, well, what about, can we? No, like straight up, you have to meet these two. And then a lot of the passage is going to explain what that looks like and how that works, and we'll, we'll get into those. But you must be, first and foremost, above reproach. Okay? That, that idea of above reproach is to be blameless, uh, to the point that a charge won't stick against you. Um, in general, the characteristics that we, we look through, they're not like a checklist of, of yes and no, yes and no. They're a lifestyle. It's a, a way that you live your life 
so that none of these can be used against you as uh, pinning negative things on you. So you need to be above reproach. Now, again, one of the examples that pops to my head is, uh, how many of you drove or are drivers? You, you drive around. How many of you have ever sped going too fast? Don't, don't incriminate them. Um, <clears throat> this is not self-incrimination, but okay. Most of you in, at some point have sped in your life. How many of you make it, it uh, don't raise your hand on this one. How many of you make it a practice to go five miles over the speed limit? Well, that's a constant uh, breaking the law, right? I would contest that even things like that indicate your character and would be not necessarily above reproach. And, I mean, that's the level that we're, we're going to be dealing with of some of these things. It's like, well, it's, it's just a couple miles over the speed. Well, except can we submit to God's authority that he's put over us, namely the laws of the land, and obey those or not? That's indicative of our character. And so I would, I would challenge you. I would submit that such things as being able to obey the speed limit are indicative of the character of a person and the way that we live. Do we submit to authority or not becomes this idea of are we above reproach or not? Can the charge stick on us or not? That's a pretty high standard. And, and this says you must be above reproach in order to be a leader in the church, in order to be an overseer. It is required. The other one we're going to see, the other time that that phrase is used is down in verse 7 that he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. We'll get to that one in a little bit. But those two things are the, the main focus. You have to be these things. And the rest explains that and helps us understand that. So like I said, it's, it's not necessarily like this checklist of did it, did it, did it, did it. Now, yes, we can use it to some extent that way. And so as we go through, we'll see certain things of like yes or no, yes or no. But it's more than that. It's not just a, a one-time, yes, I did the right thing and therefore I'm good. It's a constant way of living life all the time through. So as we dig into these, keep that in mind. This is constantly how do these men live in order to be qualified to be leaders? They must be these things. They are not suggestions. They are requirements in order for someone to be an eligible for leadership in the church. The first one, and this one gets a ton of focus and attention, the husband of one wife. Now, the, the phrasing itself is a one-woman man. Um, people focus on this one. I've heard all kinds of different ideas about it. Um, if, as I said, this is a list about characteristics of the man, it would not just be speaking about marriage and divorce. Has, has he been divorced before? Okay. Now, that's very indicative of his character. If, if a man has gotten married and then divorced and then married, it kind of does point out some things about him. But I would contest that we can understand, we'll, we'll get to more, he needs to not be a new convert, which means, okay, maybe he, he got divorced before he was saved, and after God got a hold of his life, he changed his life. And now he is faithfully devoted to the wife that he has. That's what this is talking about. That, that his focus and his attention is to his wife. Which means, more than just has he been divorced, but is he a flirt? Is he flirtatious? Is he always you know, acting improperly with other women instead of his wife? Or is he looking at pornography? Or is he sexually harassing people at work or I mean these are all indicative of is his focus on his wife is a one woman man or is his focus allowed to wander and that's again it's more than just a checklist whoop nope he's only been married once we're good no what's his attitude what's his lifestyle what's his characteristics even to the point like i mentioned that idea of speeding does he continually make it a practice to, to skirt this one, be, well, I, I, didn't, I didn't commit adultery, but, you know, I, I was oogling. This. Those are indicative that he is not a one-woman man. Well, all of these end up falling into that same idea. So I'm, I probably won't dig into them quite as much, but temperate. Uh, the, next, the next one here, he's to be the husband of one wife, temperate. That 
the specific word means sober. Um, it does come from the idea of not drunk. But the, the usage of it is a little bit more than that. It's, it's the way that he thinks. Does he have a clear mind? Does he think and process clearly? Now, I know sometimes we, we think of things like that and we start thinking off politicians who may or may not think clearly. That's not where I'm going. Is he, does he allow other things to rule the way that he thinks or not? Is he sober-minded? Is he temperate in his thoughts? The next one is prudent. Uh, again, this idea of temperate, but also um, is he self-controlled? Does his, does his way of life fit or is he just you know, flying off the handle, going all over the place? Uh, the next one's respectable. Uh, the, the word is modest. Um, the idea is really the same as what's listed up above for the ladies. Ladies are expected to be modest in the way that they appear so that they're not drawing focus to their, themselves, right? To their bodies, to their, their um, dress, their hair, their you know, jewelry, all of that stuff. The, the idea in chapter 2 is that they're not drawing the attention to themselves, but instead putting the attention to God. Well, same idea here. Men need to be modest, but this not so much in the appearance that it's appropriate before God, but in their character, in their lifestyle, in what they're doing, the way that they live. Are you a guy who's like, hey, look at me, I'm big and bad. I, I won this competition and I did this thing and I built that. Or are you modest and respectable and, and allowing the focus to be on God where it needs to be and not on yourself. That's the uh, idea that's contained in that uh, respectable um, or modest right there. The next one's hospitable. Now, I will admit that this is one that I personally struggle with. Uh, my natural bent is to be a homebody, to be um, a, a little bit, what, what's it called? There, there's the outgoing people and then there's the, the not. Introvert. Do what? Hermit? <laughs> not quite. Not quite. Uh, introverted. Uh, my, my natural tendency is to be a little bit more introverted, which I know is kind of strange that I would be the one up front talking and be an introvert. Well, introversion is not necessarily like can't talk to people, but that, that you gain your energy from just peace and quiet and relaxing back. And other people gain their energy by being with people and interacting. And you know what? God created us differently. I'm, I'm thinking of John. He's a very outgoing, out there person. Do you, do you gain energy by doing that? Okay, I, I got that impression. I thought so. And, and that's good. That's fine. God designed us differently. But in this, you have, in order to be a, an elder, a leader, a, an overseer, that's the word I'm looking for, in order to be an overseer, you have to be hospitable. Well, dig into that a little bit. It, it literally means a lover of strangers. Now, like I said, I struggle with this one. But what is the idea of loving strangers? Well, I got, I got thinking. We're going to go ahead and look up a few more passages again. Um, except I didn't write them down. Oops. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, oh, there it is. Ephesians chapter 2. I did write it down. I just didn't see it. In Ephesians chapter 2. When, when I realize what Christ has done for me, my desire for others is such that they receive that same blessing, grace, mercy. You, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting off in verse 1, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which formerly you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. He goes on and, and paints a pretty bleak picture, right? But God, verse 4, one of my favorite phrases. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love for, with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the age to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jump down to verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcised 
by the so-called circumcision, by, which is performed by human hands. Remember that you were at time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers. This, the idea here is that you were aliens, you were strangers, you were outsiders. Well, if I'm to be hospitable and a lover of strangers, and then I go here and I realize, wait a minute, I was an outsider, I was a stranger, and Christ loved me, can I not at least have that same love for others? I ought to. And so an overseer, a leader of the church, needs to show the love of Christ. That's really what it comes down to. But show that love of Christ to outsiders, to those who are, are strangers. Now, obviously, when we think of hospitality, we do, at least I do, think of, of meals, of food, bringing people in, sit them down at the table, you know, being able to, to interact. That's part of it. But more than that, I think that there is this idea of, of loving them with the love that God has loved us with. We were outsiders. We, we have no right to come before God. We, we spent uh, 10 minutes or so in prayer before the throne of God. We have no right to be there. And yet, because of Christ, we're welcomed into his presence. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Well, can we not be at least a little bit like that. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself again. I have a tendency to do that. I need to hear this stuff as much as you guys do. So sometimes I struggle with this idea of hospitality, but when I understand what Christ has done for me, it ought to change my attitude. And so these areas where you may struggle in this listing, I want to encourage you, allow God to work on you, make you better, get you closer to that bullseye instead of being just content with maybe cutting the edge of paper. Aim for the bullseye and work towards that little by little. An overseer then must be above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, simply capable of teaching the Bible. This doesn't mean that he has to have been a Sunday school teacher. I think that there's, there's more to it than that. Not just one-time one teaching, but that he's a discipler. That he desires others to develop in their ability with Christ. And, and as I was thinking on that, Matthew 28, 19, and 20 popped to my mind. I'm going to guess some of you could even quote it. Anybody brave enough? We're, we're going to give the guys a chance. Any of the guys brave enough to quote uh, Matthew 28, 19, and 20? Jim's almost ready. He's almost got it. Go ye therefore of all nations, right? Okay, you, you can pause on that. As you are going, as you are going through life, guys, are you, are you drawing people to Christ? Not just trying to get them saved, though that's very important, but are you helping develop them so that they are more like Christ? That's what the Great Commission is. That's what we've all been commanded to do. And so... Though part of this is, is merely just capable of teaching, able to teach the Bible, I think that the, the idea that we need to be looking for as we seek out men to be overseers is, are they disciplers? Are they developing others? Is that part of who they are? The next one is not addicted to wine. Uh, depending on which version you read, there's, this one's phrased different ways, um, but it we saw sober above, meaning not drunk. But this one conveys a little bit more, not necessarily of his mind, but what is his focus? Um, the idea is not lingering long over wine. And Proverbs 23 came to my mind on this one. Bear in mind, when I say came to my mind, sometimes I, I was influenced and encouraged that direction by other things that I read. It's not that Isaac knows all of these passages, but these thoughts popped to my head, and I'm like, let's, let's dig into that one. Proverbs 23, uh, verses 29 through 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrows? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Well, the answer is in the next verse, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look over the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. 
Your eyes will see strange things. Your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. This idea of, of not addicted to wine, I'm, I'm not going to say that you can never have a, a drink of alcohol. That's not what it's talking about. But what is your focus? Is that what you're always looking for and aiming for and desiring? The, the section in Proverbs there reminds me of, of some of the like uh, tasting rooms. and Oh, let's look at this one and try this vintage and check out this new... Uh, there's, there's a lot of craft beer in this area, apparently. And, you know, oh, we've got to go bar hopping and checking out on... Is that your focus? That's, that's what this is. Again, it's not just a checklist of, well, did you have 17 drinks this week or only two? Or it's, it's not that. It's what is your characteristic? What is your lifestyle? Are you controlled by alcohol? Do you allow that to dictate what you do? I would contest... I love, I love the example of, of playing with fire. How many of you have ever played with fire before? Yeah, my, my kids raised their hands. Because we set up safe situations in which they're able to. But with fire, fire's a great thing. I love fire because it allows us to keep our home warm. And it allows us to cook, cook food. But if the fire controls, instead of I control the fire, my house burns down. My kids die. Bad things happen. I would contest that the Bible talks about alcohol like fire. You start playing with fire you got to be really careful or bad things are going to happen. I'm not saying that you can never have a drink. What I am saying is that wisdom needs to rule. It needs to dictate. Not your desire for liberty. We have Christian liberties in which God says, hey, you're, you're welcome to do these things. But is your focus on having those? Or is your focus on ensuring that the fire doesn't burn the house down? Something to consider. Something to think about. Not given to much wine. Not addicted to wine. Depending on the translation you use. The next one is not pugnacious. Now, I, I personally found it interesting going through this. The first set that we went through are, are all adjectives. And it's just this adjective, that adjective. They're descriptors. And then we get to verse 3 and it inserts a negation. So not addicted to wine. Not pugnacious. Both of those are sp specified as things that the overseer, the leader in the church, needs to not have as a characteristic or as a normal thing about them. Now, I've said the word multiple times. You've probably read it. Uh, hopefully you read it in preparation. We've gone through this. But what is pugnacious? Does, just, does anybody know what that means? Violent. Violent? Okay. Combative. Not a bully is, is the thing that popped to my mind. Um, always, are, are you always ready for a fight at the drop of a hat? Are you looking for a fight? Now, it doesn't mean that you can't engage in combat. There are times when that is necessary. We, we have a couple of, there are several people in here that are uh, deputies that sometimes have to fight to protect the society in which we live. That's, that's what they have to do. But are you going out looking for a fight? Or are you just ready and prepared to fight as needed? There's a difference between defending the weak and the innocent and going out searching for a fight. And really, this is somewhat conveyed in the next term that comes up. It says, instead, or in contrast to those two, of not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, both of those, interestingly, the words are linked in that when, when people get drunk, they tend to have these brawls and these fightings and things like that. In contrast to that, instead of that, he needs to be gentle. Now, I know in our society, uh, particularly in the recent past, men were never to be like meek, weak, lowly, uh, things of that nature, gentle. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't manly. And yet, clearly it says that we are to be gentle, well, how does this work out? What does this look like? Specifically, it's, it's fair to be mild, to not be you know, running out, blowing off the handle, uh, instantly ready for a, a battle, but, but calm, 
moderate, having a suitable response. Yes, there are times when a fight is necessary. Um, I know that in, in this church, we have certain men who, they keep an eye on the, the doors, and if something bad, as has happened in some churches around the country, were to happen, they will jump up and handle that. They're ready, but they're not going out searching for a battle, not searching for somebody that they can just go beat up for kicks and giggles. They want to have an appropriate response, a suitable response. Generally, those guys are going to be really nice when somebody walks in they're going to be kind to them and greet them and, hey, I'm so glad that you're here. That's an appropriate or a suitable response. And that's what we need to be looking for in leadership, in overseers of the church. The next one kind of goes with that. The idea is uh, uncontentious or peaceable. Rather than seeking the fight, they want to be peacemakers as much as is possible. The, the last one there in verse 3 is free from the love of of money. Now, we know that money is a requirement. You, you have to have some money to be able to, to make ends meet, etc. But what's your focus? Does money control you? Does your desire for more in your pocketbook influence what you do? It, it's been said that if you show me a man's pocketbook, I will show you his religion. What's his focus? What does he believe in? What is he all about? Is it just seeking more and more money? so that I can have more? Or is it seeking sufficient so that I can be a good steward of what God desires me to be? There's a big difference. Uh, the, the phrase itself is simply not a lover of silver. Are you searching for those finance things or are you searching to glorify God, recognizing that he will take care of things? He takes care of those who follow him. And so is your focus yourself or not. All right, that's a, that's a pretty big list. Um, like I said, those are all adjectives that describe this person that is above reproach. So I, I wanted to pause just a moment. Are there any questions on, on any of that? Now, I know this evening we're going to have a, our, our guys' discipleship. We're going to sit, and I'm sure we're going to have tons and tons of questions and go over lots of stuff. I guarantee I can't answer all the questions, but any, any big major questions stick out through that. All right. If you, if you do come up with questions, by all means, I, I love the feedback. Um, it helps keep me sharp and strong, and it gives us opportunity to interact about what does the Bible say. This list is fairly simple. I mean, it's, it's pretty straight up. This is the uh, things that are required of someone to be above reproach. This is what we should expect. Just because it's simple to understand it doesn't mean that it's simple to make a consistent part of our lives. There are challenges in implementing this. These are characteristics and character traits, though, that must be expected of church leadership. And really, again, this is something that all men ought to be aspiring to or reaching for or trying to become like the list that we've been looking at. Again, guys, this is what you ought to aspire to. Ladies, this is what we need your help with. Not in a condescending way, not constantly nitpicking, oh, you didn't get this right, oh, you didn't do this one, oh, you... But with love and encouragement, help us to be better. Urge us, encourage us. Help us to become more like Christ. That's what husbands and wives are supposed to do. That's what men and women are supposed to do, is encourage each other closer to Christ. Not tearing one another down, but helping them be more like him. All right, verse 4. He must be. Again, this, this continues the idea um, and is connected with it. He needs to be one who manages his own household well. Okay. What is this referring to? Well, the home is the training ground for leadership within the church. As we evaluate potential leaders, we need to look at what are they in charge of currently? What are they overseeing or taking care of right now? And, and that starts with the home. Now, the, the phrase oikos, again, my Greek pronunciation got me in trouble in seminary, but oikos is the idea of a house or a dwelling. And in its just most basic sense, I would argue, how does he take care of his property? That which he owns, does he manage it well? Is, is he using it? Is, does he take care of it? Or does it, is it just a mess? 
and he, he doesn't care for it and on all of that. That's part of it. But the phrase is, is more referring to and often taking into account all of his home. So not just the building, though that plays a part of it. And, and as we dig through the rest of the verse, we're going to find it also includes his family, his, his household, all that is his. How does he manage it? Does he manage it well? Now notice it doesn't specify the size of home or the size of family. It doesn't say two kids, two and a half kids and a dog. It doesn't say a picket fence. It doesn't say it has to be a stick built instead of a mobile home. It doesn't, have, it, it doesn't deal with does he rent it or own it. None of that is specified, and I don't think that those are nearly as important as how does he manage it? How does he take care of it? It does tell us that he needs to manage it well. The idea of Luke 16.10 popped to my mind. It says, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. The church is not just about the property, though that is part of the responsibility of overseers, of leaders of the church. We, we have property that we are taking care of. We have to be good stewards of that. But it's more than that. It's the people. The role of an overseer is really focused on taking care of the people of the church and helping them to, be, to become more like who Christ wants them to be. That's why the rest of uh, 1 Timothy 3, 4 speaks of his children, which are part of his household. So how does he handle his kids? Uh, verse, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Are his kids well behaved? Now, obviously, kids are kids. They do different things. You know, we, we understand that. But how does he train them? How does he raise them? How does he take care of them? With, with a rod? With an iron rod constantly beating them and, you know, domineering them? I, I mean, that's how some people do. Do what? No, I'm, I'm looking behind you. Huh? By modeling. By modeling to his kids. Well, I... <laughs> I, I think that this really has two, two aspects to it. One is that he does need to have reasonably well-behaved children. I mean, that, that's required in what it says, that he needs to have good kids. But part of the evaluation is how does he train them? How does he get them to act that way? It, I, I've been in a lot of... of uh, grocery stores and, and public places, and I'll see kids acting in different ways. And I, I enjoy watching that. And sometimes I, I really enjoy it because I see kids who, you know, in the cereal aisle. Well, I'll see, I'll see kids who are, are a little bit misbehaved, and then, you know, mom will look at them. And you know the kids who know the look, right? As soon as they get the look, it's like, mm, nope, time to stop. They've been trained. Um, and then others, I'll see some of the kids who are just being completely disrespectful to their mom. And mom will say something, and I don't have to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. You ever see kids acting like that? Oftentimes, I, I'm going to contest. I would argue that that's the dad's fault because the dads need to teach their kids to be respectful to their mothers. And, and personally, that's one of my pet peeves is seeing kids that disrespect their moms because it means that the dads aren't guiding their children well, okay? But how do they do that? That's the other part of this. How do they go about doing that? Is it with the rod of just beating them senseless? Or is it with the rod of following God's directives and saying discipline them? Which, yes, as, as was mentioned, sometimes that includes a physical reminder not to harm them, but to help them become more like Christ. Now, I... I even made a note in here, this would be a good time to go on a rabbit trail about child-raising basic principles. And it would be, but I'm not going to rabbit trail too far on that one. We should talk about uh, child-rearing sometime. It, it's very important. Training their children is vital to understand how are they going to manage the church. An overseer in the church cannot come in and just beat everybody into submission and expect them to become more like Christ. So being a domineering, uh, iron-fisted ruler is not going to work. On the other hand, being an absentee father who doesn't train 
who doesn't help, who doesn't discipline, that's not going to produce kids the right way either. And so it's, it's a balance. And guys, as, as fathers, this is a challenging balance to obtain. On the one side, we want to, I, I was actually discussing, I, my mind goes to mountaintop pictures. And on the, on the one side, there's this valley where we fail to achieve God's standard by being uh, absentee, by not doing anything, by being lackadaisical. On the other side, we fail to meet God's standard by being domineering and mean and, and abusive even. But there's this, this grand plateau in between where we achieve God's standard, where we rise to the occasion and live the way that God wants us to. And we are able to have well-behaved children, not because we beat them into submission or not because we don't give them any rules, but by training them and developing them. And that's the kind of man that we want in leadership within the church because he's going to do the same thing with the body of Christ. He's going to teach them and train them and help them to become like what Christ wants them to be. He's not going to be abusive and mean, but he's going to encourage them and help them. He's not going to sit back and let them do whatever they want to. He's going to rebuke them and call them back to Christ and say, hey, you know, the Bible says we can't do that. That's not okay. And so he's going to achieve this balance. And the way that we identify whether he'll be a good leader within the church is how does he do that at home? How has he done that with his kids? That's a difficult standard. It's hard to meet, but how does that work? So how does the training occur, um, and how do the kids behave or react? Now, based on verse 5, we understand why. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so we've got to evaluate based on his home, on his oikos, on his household, Does he take care of his property and does he take care of his family in a way that glorifies God or not? And that's the the standard. That's the standard that he has to have in order to be a leader within the church. Now verse 6. Additionally, he needs to not be a new convert. It says, and not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. How long has he been saved? When we're looking at and evaluating if someone can be a leader in the church, how long has he been saved? Now, this is one of those examples where I say it's not a checklist because it doesn't say, well, he has to have been saved 43.9 months. I don't even know how many years that would be. But it it doesn't give us a, a definition. It needs not a new convert. Now, this is where one of the other terms that refers to church leadership really comes into play. The idea of elder, we talked about it in Sunday school, presbyteros. An elder means a mature individual. And so that is a requirement. That's not what's specified here, but that's part of understanding who should be in leadership of the church. Someone who's a mature believer, not a new convert. And so how long have they been saved and how do you know? What's their testimony? Have you heard it? Do they share it? This and the fact that it's the lifestyle that's being examined, not just a list of of boxes to check, is a reason that, that our church here says that a man shall have been actively involved in this fellowship a minimum of a year before they can be considered for that position of elder. That gives us time to evaluate, to look at, to watch, and to see, okay, are they, are they living these things out, or did they just walk in the door one Sunday and say, oh, yep, I want to be in charge. Not a good idea. Bad things are going to happen if we, if we do that. And so, Paul specifies not a new convert. Well, why? I, I love it when Paul explains why he says certain things. You know, the, the list above is all uh, attributes and it's all adjectives describing a man who's above reproach. But this one, he, he specifies why. And partly, I, I can come up with reasons and arguments of why it's protecting the church, but it's also protection for him. It says specifically, so that he does not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Now, I'll admit that little phrase there at the end, talking about the devil, that was a challenging one for me, and we'll pick it up when we get to a similar phrase at the end of seven. But the goal, the idea, one of the reasons is for his protection so that he doesn't get into leadership too soon and become a target for attack and become conceited and self-centered and self-focused. Verse 7. 
Now this one, as I, as I mentioned, this brings back that phrase of he must. And, and so the passage itself is controlled by these, this phrase in two places. Uh, back up in, in verse 2, an overseer must be this. And it, it very clearly specifies this is a requirement. It's not a we hope for or maybe or, you know, well, you can fudge a little bit. No, he must be above reproach. And then down here, it again reiterates that. And I think in part, Paul is putting bookends on it to say, not, not to say, well, all of this stuff that came in between, it's not really that important. That's, that's not what he's doing. He's saying all of this, this lifestyle that we're talking about, this characteristic of who this man is, is very, very important. It must be this. He must have a good re- reputation with those who are outside. And the, the idea conveyed there is typically in, italicized in most outside of the church, who, those aren't, who aren't part of the church. And so what we find is that he needs to be evaluated within the church for these characteristics and these things. But also, what does the community around us think of this guy? Well, why do you think that that would be important? Yeah, yeah, because we are going to look at him, and we'll see him a lot, and, and that's one of the reasons I really love like church work days, because the guys get together and they work, and when you see somebody working, you get to know them. If they, if they smash their thumb with a, a hammer, what comes out of their mouth? Well, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. It, it happens, and I've seen it. I, anyway, I, I'll go on a long rabbit trail there. Um, Again, this is for his own protection as well. Not just for the protection of the church, but also for his own protection. He needs to have a good reputation outside the church. And one of the practical reasons that pops to my mind goes back to chapter 2, verse 4, because God desires that all men be saved. If the leadership of the church, the, the world around looks at me like, I don't like that guy, I'm never going to... They're not going to come and be a part of the church, and they're not going to learn of who Christ is and develop in their faith with him. In fact, they may not even hear about who Christ is. And so on the practical side, we want them to be good, upstanding type citizens. But specifically, it says, um, again, so that he may not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. It's for his own protection. We don't want to set anyone up for failure. When we appoint leadership, we want them to be successful, and we want them to be able to help move the church forward, not drag it down. Unfortunately, in my experience, I have seen um, organizations and churches where the leadership disqualifies themselves, and it drags that ministry down. And it's sad because that ministry is not capable of doing what God wants them to do. It's detrimental to the people of the ministry, and it's also detrimental to the ability of the gospel to go out. And that's why we have to be very, very careful. When, when we deal with this idea of, of the devil being part of this, what comes to my mind is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. We'll go ahead and turn there real quick. In 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 8, <clears throat> we get an idea of... of who Satan is, who the devil is, what he's, what he's doing. <clears throat> In this, Peter, Peter starts off exhorting the elders among you, encouraging those church leaders. Um, and we get down to verse 8, he says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert, for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I think that the idea that's going on here is that Satan wants nothing less than to destroy any person or any church that stands on the gospel, that stands on the word of God and desires to have people be saved, desires to fulfill God's desire for them. And so Satan is looking to tear those groups and those individuals down. This church has dealt with that in the past And if we continue to stand on God's word, which I intend to lead that way, but if we intend to stand on God's word, we're going to continue to have those attacks. And so the men who lead this church need to be above reproach. They need to be upstanding individuals. They need to be well well respected by those who are outside so that 
Satan has no ability to tear them down or to tear this church, this body down. In order to do that, we have to have men like those described in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Currently, this church is functioning with the deacons acting as elders. That's the way that our constitution is set up. In the absence of a plurality of elders, the deacons step up. And, and let me just tell you, I am grateful. We've got four men that have, have been willing to do that. And it's difficult. It's challenging. It takes extra time. It takes extra effort. Being a leader in a church is hard. And we've got four men that have, have done that. But we're going to be looking next week at what a, a deacon is versus what an elder is. And our, our church is set up to have both to have elders and to have deacons. And the reason is because God wants men to lead the church and to serve the church. That's, that's the idea of an overseer and a deacon. And so I need more men to help us with that. Now, it's going to be hard. This is a very, very high standard. This is a very, very difficult standard. And so in order for Cascade Bible Church to, to do these things, we need men of, of high, high character who can step up and lead and be elders and be overseers, be the men that lead this church so that those who are deacons, who, who are there to serve, to help, we're, we'll look at specifically what they are, so that they can serve the church and develop it and help it and, and make it like it's supposed to be. It takes both. Just like we looked at, it takes both men and women to fulfill what God desires. It takes both elders and deacons for a church to be what God wants it to be. So what? What's the takeaway? Well, for one thing, don't judge a book by its cover. This list of indicators requires careful examination. We can't just, you know, glance at someone and see automatically, will they make a good leader or not? It takes and requires a careful examination to see if they really live up to this or not. So first of all, I would encourage you, examine yourself. How close to the bullseye are you hitting? Is there something where you can adjust just a little bit and get closer? Be more like Christ? Be more like what God expects? And that's for everybody. These, these are standards that, that pretty much anyone can live up to if they work at it. But it takes a lot of work. Again, the picture of a weightlifter came to my mind. When does a weightlifter become the top? Never. They're constantly working and improving and strengthening and working out day after day after day. In the same way, men, we can't just sit back and say, oh, well, I have arrived. I've reached the standard. It's a constant, continuous thing. So I would encourage each of you, examine yourself. Are you constantly getting better? And then secondly, I would ask that each of you consider those men in the church that possess these qualities. You've known each other a lot longer than I have. I've been here about two months now. And so I'm starting to get to know, I know a lot, but can you examine one another and encourage one another? Not, not to nitpick and be like, oh, well, they're, they're not living up, they're not doing a good, no, but in love, helping them become who they want to be or who God wants them to be. Can you evaluate others and recommend them for leadership and encourage them to desire to serve God however it is that he wants them to? Sometimes that's in this position of leadership. Sometimes it's in that position of a deacon. But encouraging others to be more like Christ is part of what we are called to do. And this gives us the standard of what that looks like, of what it is to be above reproach, of what it is to be, have a good reputation with those who are outside the church. Some of our guys... Uh, unfortunately, are getting to the point merely age-wise. And I, I mean this nicely, but some of our leadership currently are advancing in age. I'm looking at you younger folks. Who's going to step up and replace them? Not because we want to kick them out, but so that the next generation can continue. We as a church, honestly, are kind of at a turning point. It was founded and started great. And yeah, there's challenges, there's difficulties, but we need the next generation to step up and be ready to serve, both 
by meeting these qualifications and then by having that desire, that longing to be what God wants you to be. So pray for one another, encourage one another, and help one another to be who God desires. And I expect that there are some men that God wants to step up to lead and serve this church in that way. Pray for them and encourage them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Father, it's, it's challenging. And I, I know I probably didn't get everything and, and there will still be questions about, well, what about this and how does that? And God, help each of us to love you, to desire to live for you. Lord, help us to draw the attention and focus on you and not on ourselves. Lord, help us to be above reproach in the small things, in the big things, in, in all things. Lord, help us to be changed so that we are constantly growing into the image of your Son so that we can fulfill your desire of spreading the gospel, of making disciples, and of seeing everyone come to know you. Father, help us not to get trapped in the snares of the devil, but to live boldly for you. We can't do it on our own. We need you. Father, I pray for the, the men of this church. Lord, help each one of them desire to serve you however it is that you want them to. Help them to be willing to step into whatever position you want. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.